Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Okay, thank you. Um, I start my talk with this slide now because I've discovered that even when you're in a room of people who say they know the Burke and Hare story, we quite often find that people know different versions of the Burke and Hare story. So these are the basic facts that we're going to build on today. So during 1827 to 1828, Burke and Hare were operating in Edinburgh, providing Robert Knox's anatomy school with a supply of bodies for the teaching of anatomy and medicine. Now, with the exception of the first one, none of these people actually died naturally. We get to November 1828, and they get caught. We'll, we'll go into how in, in a minute. But, but Hare is persuaded to turn King's evidence, and as a result of that, there's a trial, and Burke gets hung. Those, those are the facts that we're going to build on tonight. So I want to start by taking you back to November the 1st, 1828, and to this area of town. So this is the Westport area, the castle's at the top, um, and you can see a little red square in the middle of the map there. Uh, if you're familiar with Edinburgh, this is currently under Argyle House. The red square is Tanner's Close, and this is where Hare and his wife have their boarding house. Now, the boarding house was previously run by Hare's wife and her former husband, and Hare had stayed there when he used to work on the Union Canal. Now, he had actually been asked to leave that boarding house because he had got a bit too free and easy with the landlady. And shortly after he had left, Margaret Laird's first husband unexpectedly dies. Um, now, knowing what we know now about William Hare, that might be a death that would be worth going back to have a look at. But as it happens, Hare moved back and the two of them started running that boarding house. But that is not where the police were called to on that night. So on the 1st of November, they were called to a house around the corner where William Burke lived. So by this time, he had moved out of Hare's boarding house. And the police were called there with tales of a body being found under the bed. Now, by the time they got there, there was just a single spot of blood, which was easily explained away. And during the conversations, it transpired that the person who had called out the police had been staying at Burke's house, and he hadn't been paying his rent. And the Burks had wanted to hold a Halloween party and not invite him. So they had asked him to leave. And the police were beginning to suspect that this was all possibly just a case of sour grapes. So they asked the Burks about the woman, who, who the body that was supposedly under the bed, Mary Campbell or Doherty. And the Burks said, yes, that she had been staying at that house. They knew her. She had been at the party. But she had left at seven. And so the police were about to leave. And then, by pure coincidence, they spoke to Burke and his wife separately. And they discovered that William Burke was saying that she left at seven in the evening, and his wife was saying that she was left at seven in the morning. And with that single lack of coordination over their alibi, the whole case 
unfolds. So let me introduce you to William Burke. Um, this is a facial reconstruction that we had done by the Centre for Human Identification in Dundee. So what do we know about William Burke? Well, it turns out we know surprisingly little. Uh, and what we do know, we know from the man himself. So this is a man who managed to make at least three conflicting confessions, so probably not the most reliable source of information. We know that he was Irish. We don't even actually know exactly where he was born. So his confession says that he was born in Ory, O-R-R-E-Y, which doesn't exist. The best excuse we have for that is that the person who transcribed his original confession couldn't understand his Irish accent. So we have some idea of what he sounded like, and we believe he actually came from Ernie, U-R-N-E-Y, which is in Northern Ireland. Um, we know that he served seven years in the Donegal militia. Um, he tells us that, but we've also got the army records to back it up. And we know that he was educated by both Catholic and Protestant clergymen. So of the four people in the gang, so Burke Hare and their wives, he was the only one who signed their confessions. The others simply made their mark. And actually some of the confessions he wrote. So he was an educated man. And we know that although the names that have gone down in history are Burke and Hare, their wives were almost certainly involved to some extent. Now when I say wives, Burke had a legitimate wife that he left in Ireland along with his children when he came over to Scotland to work on the Union Canal. And it was then that he set up house with Nellie MacDougall, who is now referred to as his wife. But actually, it was for setting up house with Nellie that he was excommunicated from the Catholic Church long before he thought about murdering anybody. And the final thing that we know that surprises some people is the age difference between Burke and Hare. It's not often talked about, but from the prison records, we know when they were arrested that Hare was 21, whereas Burke was 36. So there's quite a difference in age there. So you might think with all the stories that we already know about Burke and Hare, why was there the need to do any research and write yet another book about them? And it boils down to three reasons, essentially. The first one, is, as Ian said, I work in the anatomy department at the University of Edinburgh, and our anatomical museum houses the skeleton of Burke. It was part of his sentence that should it ever be customary to preserve skeletons, that his would be preserved forever so that posterity would not forget his atrocious crimes. We open the last Saturday of each month, and I stand in that museum, and I hear people come in and tell the most ridiculous stories about Burke and Hare. So part of the reason was to get the, the facts of the case out there so that we could see what was fact and what was fiction. The second reason was a really quite specific reason to do with the fact of the claim that he had testicular cancer and looking for male descendants because there's a genetic component to testicular cancer. So the second part of the research was a purely scientific um, reason behind that. The third reason was that when you start getting into this story, you get dragged into everything. It goes off at tangents, things you didn't think would be involved, and you end up with something that covers everything up to and including the kitchen sink. 
So it's those three things I want to look at tonight and expand a bit on what we found. So the first reason was story and getting the story right. Now, obviously, in a story, you can change the facts and you, well, you can change bits of it and you just come up with a different version of the story. But the things you can't change or shouldn't change are the facts. And the first fact that most people get wrong about Burke and Hare is this. This is how they're often depicted in various qualities of films, um, either with the tools of the trade for grave robbing or in a grave. Now, we're lucky enough in our special collections at the university that we have a transcript of the court case. And during the 24 hours of that court case, there is not a single mention of grave robbing. Now, there's a number of reasons for this. The first one, and it might surprise you to know that grave robbing wasn't actually a crime. Okay, it was a misdemeanor. At worst or best, depending how you look at it, you were going to get a fine, possibly one or two days in prison. If you were grave robbing for a medical school, an anatomy school, or a surgeon, they would pay that fine. And if you got sent to prison, they would look after your family whilst you were there. So grave robbing wasn't such a big deal. There were a lot of people doing it at that time, and for those reasons, we need to look at why there were so many people doing it. So obviously medicine, particularly in Edinburgh, was a, a big thing. We had lots of people that we needed to teach medicine to. And Edinburgh Council provided the College of Barber Surgeons with one body a year. That was the agreement they came up with in 1505. Now, one body isn't a lot of use. This changed to 1752. They brought in the Murder Act, which meant that anybody who is executed for murder, their body would also be handed over to the medical school, and that could be used for dissection. Now, for the teaching of medicine, unfortunately, at this time, the university wasn't that great at teaching anatomy. So we'd started off with Monroe Primus, who was an excellent anatomist, We'd gone through his son, Monroe Secundus. By the time we get to 1820s, we're into Monroe Tertius, who was a bit of a sorry excuse for an anatomist. And so lots of other people had set up anatomy schools in Edinburgh. And the biggest and best of these was led by Robert Knox. And he got lots of people coming to his anatomy school. He had classes of sort of four or five hundred. And this was because he was a great teacher, but also because he, he guaranteed fresh bodies. So if you look at the advertising for all of the schools in Edinburgh, you can work out that we actually needed a supply of somewhere over 500 bodies a year. And there just weren't that many murderers around. And, and so they had to get the supply from somewhere. And you'll be aware that we have these mort safes and iron cages that were put over graves to stop people digging them up. So there were lots of people doing grave robbing, but it doesn't get mentioned in the trial. Now, there's a very good reason for this, and it comes down to the lawyers in the trial. Now, the legal case of Burke and Hare is actually interesting in a legal sense, not just from the anatomy sense. And there were some legal decisions taken that day that still stand um, in legal circles. But it was also a fight between the Whigs and the Tories, as lots of things were back there. So... All four of the judges in the case were Tories, and all of the lawyers were Whigs. Okay, so 
Burke and his wife both had four lawyers each, and these lawyers volunteered their services. And these were not your normal run-of-the-mill legal aid lawyers. All of them, exception of one, went on to be the procurator fiscal or, or an eminent judge themselves. Okay, the one person who gave up law altogether and went to live in the country was the one person who actually met Burke in his cell. He just dropped out of society altogether. But the other seven, very eminent lawyers. And their main reason for taking on this case was to upset the judges. Justice was sort of going to be a byproduct. But Nellie, Burke's wife, her defence relied upon the fact that she could say it wasn't unusual to find a dead body in the house. If Burke said he wasn't a grave robber, he wipes out his wife's defence. So we've got legal books in our law libraries at the university which are suitably vague on whether this idea came from Burke or whether it came from the lawyers. But primarily there's no mention of grave robbing during that 24-hour court trial because it is Nelly's defence. Okay. In every confession he writes thereafter, he is emphatic that he never, ever robbed a grave. Okay, so if you take nothing else from tonight's talk, please just take the fact that Burke and Hare did not start as grave robbers and get a bit lazy and go to murder. They went straight into serial killing. Okay. The second issue I said was, was about uh, a very specific thing about testicular cancer and male descendants. So the Discovery Channel had already sequenced a small section of Burke's DNA, and there was a suggestion that we were going to sequence some more of it. As I say, a couple of the books just stated that he had testicular cancer. And because of this genetic component, I felt that we ought to find out if there were any direct male descendants. Now, finding Irish ancestors is really difficult because they had a big fire in their records office and they've lost large sections of their records. But we knew a bit about Burke's family, so we know that they came from Tyrone in Ireland. We've got the father, Neil, and there was William and Constantine. There is a debate as to whether there were more children. Um, but... William and Constantine both served in the Donegal Militia. They were both in Edinburgh. They came over separately, and rather ironically, Constantine Burke worked for the police. We know that William had a wife, Margaret Coleman, over in Ireland, and we know that they had children anywhere between two and seven. We know that most of them died, but there were one or two we, we weren't sure where they had gone to. And we knew that Constantine and Elizabeth had two children, Richard and William, because they appear in the witness list for the court trial. They were actually given the clothes of some of the murder victims. And so I just I literally handed this bit of work over to a colleague who is into genealogy and said, see if you can find anything for those children, if we can trace them. And she went away for several months and she came back going, no, I can't find anything on those, but I found a niece, Elizabeth Burke. Now, at this point, I began to get a bit suspicious because no story of Burke and Hare has ever mentioned a niece. But the piece of paper she had found 
was this immigration certificate. Um, as with all the papers, it's handwritten, so it's a bit um, tricky to read, but that word there says Tyrone. Now, we know that Constantine's family was paid to leave Edinburgh after the court case. We don't know where they went, but Tyrone is where they came from, so there's a possibility that they returned home. But you can see that this person is the daughter of Constantine Burke, and the mother is called Elizabeth Graham. Now, Constantine was a fairly unusual name back then, so to find it as Constantine Burke and with the right wife's name as well, we are like 99% sure that this is the immigration papers of the niece of William Burke. So why had nobody mentioned her? Well, we're going with the theory that if you work out how old she was when the murder took place in Constantine's house, so one of the victims was murdered in the house of somebody who worked for the police, um, she would have been about six or seven. And it wasn't unusual back then, if you had a six or seven-year-old daughter, that you would have placed her in somebody else's house as a maid. So the possibility is that she's simply not mentioned in the other stories because she's not there when it happens. She's somewhere else. And she just reappears because the family left Edinburgh and went back to Ireland. Now, interestingly, from Elizabeth, you can actually get a family tree um, because the software that uh, my friend did the genealogy on, we know that some of the descendants are trying to trace their family tree back. So there is a line missing from the bottom of this. Everybody whose name is up there has already passed on. Um, but we have actually got in touch with the living relatives um, to tell them that we've managed to trace this back up. That was a fun email to draft. Um, <laughs> they're all in America, so they love the fact that they've got some sort of link uh, back to this bit of history. But we've kind of drawn a blank on the direct male descendants. So then I looked at the testicular cancer part of this. So a couple of the history books, they just simply state Burke had testicular cancer. Uh, a couple of them point you back to uh, a book called Atlee's Flamous Trials of the 19th Century, saying that in there, there's the information that he had testicular cancer. Um, I read it from cover to cover, and it's not in there. You find that quite a lot. They just point you to dead ends, assuming you're not going to go and actually check. I'd spoken to the pathologists at the hospital at Little France. We've only got skeletal remains of Burke. The chance of finding out if he had testicular cancer from that was pretty much zero. So I'd kind of given up on this line of inquiry. And I was reading all the papers to bring them together to write the manuscript. And I came across Thomas Stone's paper on phrenology. Now, phrenology is the study of the lumps and bumps on your head, um, which was meant to be able to predict what sort of personality you had. And Thomas Stone used Burke's data to help debunk the pseudoscience of, of phrenology. So Burke had a really large area of benevolence and a really small area of destructiveness. Okay, and obviously that did not fit in with the personality that he portrayed. I hadn't read all of Thomas Stone's paper because it's 75 pages long and it was written in 1829. Um, but over what was then the Christmas period, I thought, right, I'll sit down and I'll read this paper. Now, I got to page 17, turned over, rather unsurprisingly, it's pages 18 and 19, but 
for those of you that are sharp-eyed, you might see that halfway down page 18, it changes into Latin. And what they've got there is an excerpt from the actual dissection report on Burke when he was dissected at the anatomy school. Now, I might not study Latin, but I do study anatomy, and some of those words got me thinking, this is not about lumps on his head. Um, I sent it off to colleagues at Classics. They translated it, and we then sent the medical report up to the pathologists with the question, was this testicular cancer? And they came back, um, absolutely not. Those were not the symptoms of testicular cancer. They were the symptoms of every other or every sexually transmitted disease there was going, um, but not testicular cancer. So after 188 years, we've managed to pretty much prove that Burke did not have testicular cancer. Now, as an add-on to this, he was a very sick man. Okay? The, these conditions, that's not great. And we know from two independent sources that once he was convicted, he should have been on bread and water until he was executed. But they had to change his diet on medical grounds. So they had to take really special care of him to keep him alive for long enough to kill him. Um, so he really wasn't a well man at all. Now the third reason I said it was that you get into this story and it just goes off on all sorts of tangents. And it actually ends up posing more questions than it answers. And I want to just highlight a couple of those for you. Now, this is a drawing of Mary Patterson. It's a copy of a drawing that was done at the time. Robert Knox got somebody in, a famous artist, to draw this body. Um, now, you probably don't need me to tell you that that is not the normal way to depict dead bodies. And why Burke, uh, why Knox was drawing dead bodies is probably another talk altogether. But for comparison, this is what a medical student drew of the same body. Um, why the medical student was drawing it, again, we don't know. But Mary Patterson is interesting because there's two different theories about her. At the time, she was portrayed as being a prostitute. And she was, it was also reported in the papers that her body was recognised by the doctors. Now, her friends objected at the time, but it suited the papers to give the impression that most of the victims were prostitutes, but also to give the impression that most of the medical profession knew a lot about prostitutes. And, and so that's the story that was published at the time. Now, Lisa Rosner, who's an academic over in America, has looked into uh, Mary Patterson quite a lot. We know that she was the daughter of an engraver in Edinburgh, and we know that, that like um, Burke's niece, she was put out to service in a house as a maid. Now, she became pregnant by one of the gentlemen in that household, and she ended up in somewhere called the Magdalene Asylum, in Edinburgh. Now, all of the records of the Magdalene Asylum still exist in the city archives. So this was a house for wayward girls, if you like, down in the Canongate area of town. And she went there, you were put in there for a minimum of three years, and you paid your way by making shirts and washing sheets, that sort of thing. Now, after three years, she asked to be released. 
and we've got the committee papers where it was, it was uh, agreed that Mary Patterson could be released. And she was released into the Canongate area of town the same week, a couple of days before the murder of Mary Patterson in the Canongate area of town. And we also know that if you fell ill at the Magdalene Asylum, you would have gone to the Royal Infirmary, as it was then. And we have the records from the Royal Infirmary. And you can see down here that we have a Mary Patterson who was in hospital earlier on in that April, and she had something wrong with her liver. So the alternative story for Mary Patterson is that she had spent three years in the Magdalene Asylum. She was released at the beginning of April, and she met up with her friend Janet Brown. The two of them met Burke that morning, sort of like four or five in the morning, and they went back to Constantine's house for breakfast, and they were already drinking quite heavily. Mary Patterson becomes unconscious because she hasn't drunk anything for the last three years, and possibly there's something wrong with her liver. Burke and Janet go out for lunch, and Burke comes back, having arranged to meet Janet later. He and Hare then murder Mary Patterson, and they take her along to Knox's anatomy school where the doctors there recognise Mary Patterson, not because they make frequent use of prostitutes, but because she was in the hospital earlier on in that week. And this is kind of collaborated by the fact that in the court papers, she's down as Mary Patterson or Mary Mitchell. And if you look at the, the ward list, there was a Mary Mitchell on that ward as well. Now, she unfortunately died in the hospital. But if you were a doctor who had met Mary Patterson, you would also have met Mary Mitchell. Hence, why there might have been a bit of confusion over the name. So I'll leave it to you to decide which one you think is the more possible of those stories. Then we come to this man whose portrait is pointed out to me is actually over there on the walls. This is Robert Christensen. Now, he was one of the medical experts at the Burke and Hare trial. There were three medical experts at the Burke and Hare trial, and between them, they added absolutely nothing. Um, the Burke and Hare had devised quite an ingenious way of killing people, um, which is now called burking, um, but you hold the mouth shut, seal the nose, and the other person lies across uh, the chest. It stops them fighting, but also it makes it very hard to breathe in. Now, there is the fact that actually most of their victims had drunk so much there is some debate as to whether they would have woken up whether Burke and Hare had killed them or not. But no medical evidence was found that this person had been suffocated. And the three medical experts simply said it was their personal opinion that she had been suffocated. But there we go. What's interesting is this book on poisons. And it's not just this general book on poisons, it's this particular book on poisons, which is at the Royal Medical Society in Edinburgh, because it has this note in the margin, which says, Burke the murderer took an ounce and a half when drunk without any bad effect. Now, we don't know who wrote that there, and we don't know when. But the text over to the right-hand side is about laudanum, Laudanum is a 10% solution of opiates in alcohol. It was like the equivalent of aspirin. You could get it everywhere, and it was really quite cheap. It's not surprising, in view of the dissection report that we saw earlier, that Burke was taking painkillers. 
What is a bit surprising is that that text talks about somebody who took two ounces and died. So an ounce and a half is a relatively large dose. So it's possible he'd been taking it for some time and had built up some sort of tolerance to it. So a habitual drug user, if you like. Now, laudanum appears in the grave robbing and body supplying stories elsewhere. And it appears with the London Burkers. So Thomas Williams and John Bishop, who killed people down in London to supply medical schools. It was them that really caused the Anatomy Act of 1832 to come in, because obviously it's more important if it happens in London. Um, but they poisoned their victims. They gave them laudanum, and then they hung them upside down in a well to kill them. Now, the question it poses here is that Burke and Hare gave their victims a lot of whiskey. And laudanum was cheaper than whiskey, and Burke clearly had a readily supply of laudanum. So if, as they claim, Burke and Hare were just doing it to make money, they're eating into their profit margin by using whiskey rather than laudanum, which makes you wonder how that fits together. They must surely have realised they could have poisoned them with laudanum. And then we get on to the confessions. So, as I said, Burke made multiple confessions. There was the official one that he made to the sheriff. And then he asked if a reporter could come into the prison to take down a second confession. Now, this was obviously turned down. And the fear was that they would end up with conflicting confessions. And that wasn't in anybody's interest. So Burke wrote a second confession and he sneaked out of prison. Now, there is some debate amongst um, researchers of Burke and Hare as to whether the current confession is actually real. It's called the current confession because it was published in that newspaper. And there was actually a legal battle between the journalist who was meant to go into the prison to, to have this dictated to him and the paper that eventually got hold of it. Now, the paper got hold of it because Burke gave it to a fellow prisoner and that prisoner handed it over to one of the prison guards who then sold it to the paper. And what's interesting, although there's a big debate over um, the authenticity of the current confession, is that nobody had actually looked to find out that whether the person that Burke said he gave the confession to existed. And it seemed a bit of a simple thing to find. But who would he have given the confession to? So he's a murderer... Uh, and he's destined to die in January 1829. So he really needs to give that confession to somebody who's going to get out of prison relatively soon after that. But he wouldn't have been mixing with petty criminals and sort of pickpockets. So what we're looking for is a murderer who's about to be released from prison. And that seemed highly, highly unlikely in that age of, of capital punishment. Okay? But would you believe that there was one? Um, we don't know which prison he was in, but we know that he was due to be released in February 1829. Now, when Burke wrote this confession, he said he wanted it releasing three months after he'd died. So that fitted in exactly. And the one thing we do know about that man is that his name was Andrew Ewart. And he was the only person called Ewart who was in prison in Edinburgh at that time. And the one thing that we know about who Burke said he gave the confession to is he gave it to, Anne, to a pr 
prisoner Ewart. So we're fairly confident that this might be the same person. Now, obviously, a murderer who's about to be released needs a bit of explaining. So as I said, grave robbing wasn't actually a crime, and so to guard against it, cemeteries set up watches of local people. And this is Liberton Kirk. It was having a bit of problem with grave robbing at the time, and so it had increased the number of people in its watch. And on this particular night, one of the watch had gone out and hadn't returned. So Andrew Ewart and his friend Henry Peacock decided they would go out and try and find the other member of the watch. So they went out, and for some reason best known to themselves, they decided to walk around the graveyard in opposite directions. Okay, so you can probably see what's coming. Henry thought it would be really funny to hide behind one of the gravestones and jump out at Andrew as he went past. So this is what he did, and Andrew shot him. And five days later, Henry dies. Um, so Andrew finds himself up in court charged with murder, and he is actually convicted to, to be executed, his sentence to be executed. But then there's an appeal, and importantly, that appeal was led by Henry's parents. So the judge looks at it again, he looks at the circumstances, he looks at the large amount of alcohol that was involved in that activities that evening, and he changes Andrew's sentence, and he changes it to a year in prison. And as I say, he was due to be released in February 1829. He is the ideal person, and with the correct name, for Burke to give his confession to. But you can understand that having given that confession to Ewart, he's not likely to stand by Burke because he's in prison for a year having lost his best friend to grave robbers. So he hands it over to one of the prison guards. And we believe that is the story behind the current confession. Now, no story about Burke will be complete without mentioning this man. This man, obviously, is William Hare. That's his life mask. Um, now... Hare turned King's evidence, and he gave them evidence for three murders. Important landmark legal decision coming up here. The court case started with an objection from Nellie's lawyers, because of the three murders that he gave them information about, so he gave them Mary Patterson, Daft Jamie, and the final one, the, the Mary Campbell, or Doherty. Only one of those mentioned Nellie Burke, and Nellie's lawyers said, you cannot possibly try for all three of those cases together. Only one of them contains our client. You need to do these cases separately. And after an hour's debate, the judges turned to the prosecution and said, they're right, you need to pick which one of these cases you're going to take forward. And so the prosecution picked the last case, the one that mentioned Nellie and Burke. And in making that decision they wiped the witness list from 55 people down to 18. And because they had the remains of Mary Campbell, they didn't need any of the doctors to appear as witnesses. So this is what led to the idea that there was some sort of cover-up between the lawyers and the doctors. Now, I'll say the 24 hours of the court case, the jury came back, they found Nellie not proven, and they found Burke guilty, not unanimously, it was a split decision. Majority of the jury thought he was guilty. So that was it, capital punishment. There was no need to go forward with the other two court cases. You can't hang the man more than once. 
And so they were presented with the fact that Hare had given them evidence for three murders and they'd only used one of them. So the prosecution then thought, hang on, could we use the evidence he's given us for the other two murders to prosecute him? So again, big debate with the judges. And eventually they said, no, you can't, because he gave that information assuming he was immune. So you cannot take out a criminal case against him using that information. But you can take out a civil case against him. And that's a decision that still stands to this day. So then we have the family of Daft Jamie appearing. They're going to take out a civil case against Hare. Because of this, Hare was still in prison when Burke was executed. So Burke had no idea that Hare got off scot-free. Now, the boarding house was owned by his wife, and the day he was arrested, his servant ran off with his pig herd. So Hare didn't actually have any way of making any money. It was a civil case, so we we're only talking about money. And actually, the Wilson family weren't rich. They couldn't keep the lawyer. So the case ended up falling, and Hare was released. Now, he was put onto a coach going down towards Dumfries under the name of Mr. Black. And unfortunately for him, that night it was raining. So he persuaded his way inside the stagecoach. And unfortunately for him, sitting opposite him was the lawyer from the Wilson family. By the time they got to Dumfries, he had ensured that everybody on that stagecoach knew exactly who this person was. And shortly after their arrival, a mob appears in Dumfries. They have to take Hare into the coach house and they sneak him out one of the windows at the back. They escort him down towards the border at Carlisle and they release him into England. <laughs> okay. And that is actually the last verified sighting of Hare. The story was that he was recognised, he was thrown into a lime pit where he was blinded and he spent the rest of his days as a blind beggar in London. Okay, there's absolutely no proof for that whatsoever. If you go through the local papers in, in the National Library, you'll find four or five different accounts of his trial and execution in four or five different places. Um, we're currently following a line of inquiry. I sound like a police person, but um, there's a belief that he actually got back to Ireland to a workhouse in Khalil. And he's buried in the graveyard there in an unmarked grave. And the reason for this belief comes from the fact that the doctor who was based at that workhouse trained in Edinburgh during the 1820s. He recognised him. He knew him during his time in Edinburgh and he recognised him when he reappeared over in Ireland. So that's possibly what happened with Hare. Now... I mentioned that Burke wrote several confessions. This is a third one that we found. It's over in America at the New York Academy of Medicine. And that is his handwriting. You can see there's a section here that says, as for the women in the canal, I never knew anything of them nor any of those people. So it sounds like the police were almost trying to fit some other unsolved crimes onto the Burke and Hare Westport murders. And down here, we can see his name. There's no E on the end of it. That seems to have been a, an invention of ours. Now, at the beginning, 
I said that this story went up to encompass everything, including the kitchen sink. And you probably thought that was a throwaway line. Um, but actually, one of the victims of Burke and Hare was called Joe the Miller. We're not sure about the the anymore. He was either the second or the third victim, depending on whose confession you believe. So in Burke's confession, he was the second. In Hare's confession, he was the third. Now, Walter Scott appears to be the only person who saw both confessions, and he came down on the side of Hare because he thought it was more reasonable, the order in which the people were killed. Um, so Joe was sick already, and apparently it's more reasonable to kill a sick person than to kill a healthy person. Um, but there we go. All of the confessions have actually disappeared. So the original Burke confession, the original Corrant confession, and Hare's confession have all vanished. But Joe the Miller, we always assumed he was an agricultural worker that was down on his luck. But in the Corrant confession, Burke ties him to the Falkirk Ironworks. Um, they're called the Karen Ironworks. They still exist today. They've been bought out by an American company. They're called Karen Phoenix. And they make kitchen sinks, along with other things. So one of my beliefs is that we should maybe try and leave this place uh, a better place than we found it, which posed me with the issue as to how to make something good come out of retelling the story of a serial killer. And so it, it, um, the idea of splitting the profits of the book um, came. And so a portion of the profits are going back into the anatomy department to help fund education using cadaveric material, which is what the whole story was about. But another proportion are also going to the Oddballs charity. So this is the charity that raises the awareness of testicular cancer, because nobody should have to wait 188 years to be told that they're free of cancer. So it just remains for me to um, thank all the people. I'm sure it's not an exhaustive list, but um, it, it was interesting. I have to say, as soon as I got in touch with anybody, they came straight back with, this is the weirdest uh, question I've ever been asked, particularly the pathologists up at the hospital. But a lot of hope from all of those people. And as Ian said, the book, it's £10 or £9.99, is uh, available outside. But I'm happy to answer any questions if you've got any now. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you. <laughs>